they've mentioned when Vijay was speaking here a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking in his church and this morning your pastor is speaking at his church while I'm here. So I'm just really happy to be part of a team like this and part of my joy is seeing how God is raising up so, much, so many people of the young next generation who love God, who love his word, who are gifted to communicate in fresh and exciting ways and at this stage in my life is just a joy for us to see um, that exactly that legacy that John was talking about. So, so thankful for the privilege of uh, speaking here this morning. You recently finished a study on Colossians and a couple of weeks ago probably you heard Pastor Lucas speak about uh, devoting yourself to prayer, being watchful and thanksgiving. And I suspect there were many of you here that day who were probably stirred and had a desire to maybe take your prayer life to a to next level. Now if I were to take a survey of those same people this morning, I would kind of guess that perhaps a lot, a lot of you haven't done much with it. Not because your desires weren't important, but there's something else that's at work that gets in the way. And John Piper puts it this way. He talks about a practical challenge. He says, unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If we want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You won't have anything ready. You don't know where to go and nothing has been planned. But that's how many of us treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be part of our life, but nothing is ever ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. No time, no place, no procedure. And, we, and this is key. We all know that the opposite of planning is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experiences in prayer. The opposite of planning is a rut. If you don't plan a vacation, you'll probably stay at home and watch TV. The natural, unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest ebb of vitality. Notice that. The natural, unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest vitality. There's a race to be run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life for prayer, you must plan to see it. So I'm just going to talk about a very mundane, practical uh, approach to prayer. I've just called it, you got to have a plan. Where do you start? Jesus said to his disciples, he said, don't be like the Pharisees, go and pray in a closet. Now, the point of his instruction was to contrast true prayer from the prayer of the Pharisees who did it to put on a show in public uh, to be rewarded by the opinions of people around them. So when Jesus told his people to go into a closet, that's what he was talking about. But the closet principle is something that applies to us in this culture. We won't really pray on the street corner. In fact, most of us don't pray in public at all for a variety of reasons. You see, prayer has to do with the invisible and the inaudible and the intangible. You can't see God. You can't hear him. You can't touch him. You can't encounter God in any of the ways that we normally encounter people in a relationship. Yet you and I are creatures of space and time. The visible and the audible have an incredible power over us and they distract us very easily. I still remember a time when it was the summertime, June, July, I think I was in my study. I was actually praying and all of a sudden I found myself thinking about Christmas. Now how does your mind go to Christmas in the middle of June? Now, because I get in, in, uh, intrigued by these kinds of phenomena, I actually stopped praying to think about this a little bit more. And I found in the top left-hand corner of my desk, I'd made a little note to myself about something I needed to do that Christmas. And the 
corner of my eye must have caught that single word and my mind has taken off. That's how powerful the visible and the audible is. And yet prayer is, has to do with the invisible and the inaudible. And therefore, building the equivalent of a closet is our first point. So here's where you start. You need to establish a quiet place in which you can pray. <clears throat> I will also become over a period of time sacred space. Now, no place is sacred as such. This building doesn't make anything sacred. It's the people and what goes on inside it that makes it sacred. But when you regularly encounter God in a certain place, places begin to be touched with the aura of the holy. Another thing that happens when you establish a particular place is that it reinforces habit. People who study these kind of things tell us that if you do the same thing for 21 days, or I've heard 36 days, one of the two is true, it eventually becomes a habit in your life. And you know something about habits? Every one of us are creatures of habit. The only question is whether your habits are good or bad. You don't really have a choice as to whether you're going to be controlled by habits. We all are. But you do have a choice of whether they're going to be good habits or bad habits. So those are some reasons why establishing a quiet place to pray is helpful. We also need to establish an alert time to pray. So we don't have to get involved in the morning debate or, you know, am I a morning person, am I an evening person debate. The critical central issue is one of alertness for precisely the same reason. We're dealing with the invisible, we're dealing with the inaudible, we're dealing with something crucial. And if prayer is really a relationship, we're encountering somebody. And therefore alertness becomes absolutely crucial to the whole task. Now different ones of us are alert at different times in the day. For myself, I, I'm an early morning person. As the day goes on, once 9.30 it hits at night, I'm not good for anything significant at that point. Pastor Josh Ross Ingram, who planted Rexdale Alliance Church, used to do most of his productive work from 10 in the night till 2 in the morning. So I understand the fact that we're all different. So it's not so much that a particular time of the day is sacred as much as the fact that you choose a time where there is maximum alertness. Having said that though, Here's another principle to keep in mind. The sooner in the day, the better. The simple reason for that is, it's very hard for us to maintain a sense of importance for something that we keep pushing further and further down the line in a day. And again, precisely because we are creatures of space and time, I find for myself that once I get into the rhythm of the day, it becomes a gigantic task for me to stop dead in my tracks and shift my focus completely from the visible and the audible to the invisible and the intangible. But having said all of that, somewhere along the spectrum, you need to find a block of time where you're likely to have minimum disturbance and maximum alertness for yourself. Trying to pray at 11 o'clock at night in between the sheets is probably not a good idea at all. You know? It doesn't work. I don't know anybody for whom that works. Again, time becomes sacred just like space becomes sacred. So attempting to have a particular block of time in the same and roughly the same spot regularly makes that period of time sacred. It's a holy God who makes space sacred and who makes time sacred. And it reinforces habit in exactly the same way. And so for these couple of reasons, establishing a space place and establishing an alert time to pray is important. Now I know, for example, for myself, in the summer... I have different routines than I have in the winter. I'm a warm-blooded guy. I grew up in India for the first 21 years, and I hate the winters. I've been here 44 years. I still hate the winters. We have a beautiful ravine next to our parsonage where I live. And so all my summer, I do most of my praying while I'm walking in the ravine. And so my time and my place shift. But it's still a place. I've walked it for so many years now. The visible does not distract me at all. 
every nook and cranny of, cranny of that uh, winding road I know, you know, like, like, a, like the back of my hand, as they say. And so uh, it doesn't, you can, doesn't mean that you can't change these things, but the principle is still holds. Find an established place, establish a place and establish a time. It's also important to set aside a certain block of time. Now, it's very hard to reason from the, to deduce from the scriptures that there's a prescribed amount of time that we all have to pray every day. It's just not there in the Bible. In fact, the only reference that I found to a block of time and prayer that could at all be considered significant was when Jesus took his three disciples uh, when he was in Gethsemane and they were falling asleep and he said to them, could you not watch with me one hour? But it's hard to develop a whole theology of prayer on that particular thing. However, there are some guidelines, again, from my own experience I've found. You need to strike a balance when it comes to this amount of time. First of all, it needs to be large enough to be meaningful. The, the reason for that is that prayer is not a religious activity. It's a relationship with the living God. At least that's what it's supposed to be. And like we know from all relationships, they take time. A meaningful encounter with somebody takes a certain amount of time. And exactly the same thing is true with God. There are many, many ways in which I've experienced the reality. Helmut Tillich, the German scholar, used to say, most people pr uh, find prayer boring, so they pray only five minutes. He says, well, the truth of the matter is, most people find prayer boring because they only pray five minutes. Uh, from, a, from a creation perspective, this was driven home to me many years ago, and my wife and I and, a, and uh, her sister and brother-in-law, we took a, a trip in, up in Calgary. I've never been to the Rockies before. And the trip from Calgary to Banff to Jasper, many of you have done that along Icefields Parkway, is absolutely magnificent. And it's a four-hour trip if you drive. And on the way up, it took us 11 hours. I'd never seen the Rockies before. So every turn in the road, it was just magnificent. You just sit down and, and got glory and wonder and awe had meaning poured into it. And I understand creation is what gives glory meaning, by the way. And everything was glorious. Everything was worthwhile exploring. On the way back, I had an appointment at 5 o'clock in Calgary and we got late leaving there. And so those same beautiful mountains were now sources of irritation for me. And when I finally saw the flatlands of Calgary before me, I was happy. Uh, I mean, you, what was the difference? Everything was just as spectacular on the way back, but I had no time. I had lots of time on the way up. Beauty requires time. An encounter with glory requires time. And so you, it needs to be large enough to be meaningful. At the same time, at the same time, it needs to be small enough to be manageable. There's a story in the Bible that doesn't really have to do with prayer, but it illustrates this principle of making something small enough to be manageable. So we're not daunted by the massiveness of the task. Some of you might recall the story that when the uh, Israelites were about to get into the promised land for the first time, Moses sent the spies away for 40 days. And they came back and they said, wow, it's a magnificent place, land of milk and honey. They brought back some of the produce as well. But they said there are giants in the land, it's too big. And so they rebelled. And for that, they spent 40 more years in the wilderness. Moses handed over leadership to Joshua. And this time when Joshua came to the edge of the promised land, he was very wise. He didn't send them away for 40 days. He just sent two spies and they just went to Jericho. And they came back and said, God has given this place to us already. That was manageable, small enough to be manageable. So it is when it comes to prayer. It needs to be large enough to be meaningful, but it needs to be small enough to be manageable. If you read Luther's biography and see him saying, well, I'm, I pray three hours every day. And you say, okay, from tomorrow morning, I'm going to start praying three hours. You're going to fail. And now the enemy has guilt in addition to his other weapons to keep you har harassed. You know. 
So it needs to be large enough to be meaningful, small enough to manage it. And of course, we're all ultra practical in North America. So you all want a number, right? You're going to have to wait for it for a few more minutes. I'm getting to it. All right. We've established a place. We've established a time. We have, we have established a block of time, but we haven't started praying it. You've got to get there. Just like when you make appointments in your book. You've got a place. You've got a time. You've got an amount of time, but you still have to get there. And that's crucial. To keep our appointments here, you just have to get into a car and you've got to negotiate the 401, especially if you're going eastbound from where, where I am. But that's about the biggest challenge we have. There's a much bigger challenge involved when it comes to this because this is an opposed task. When we are praying, we are directly engaging something that the forces of darkness do not want us to do. Satan will oppose our life of prayer more than he will oppose anything else. Because you see, when we are on our knees, we are at our most dependent we are at our most humble. We have least reason to be self-confident. Otherwise, we wouldn't be on our knees. Which is exactly the mindset that the enemy doesn't want. The quintessential mindset of Satan is pride. The posture of prayer is the exact opposite of, prayer, of pride. And so he opposes prayer. Dr. Tozer, uh, this church has heritage closely connected to him, was the one who said that the enemy trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his or her knees. And so it is an opposed task. So Satan's going to prevent you from all kinds of ways, you know, interference from outside, from within. And so it's going to take a militancy on our part to actually get to our appointments. So that's the next step, which is to guard. So you set aside a block of time, then guard your appointment. How do you guard it? How do you guard an appointment? It's with a certain mindset because this is the battlefield, right? The primary battlefield we have is our mind. And so we've got to learn to think in a certain way to resist whatever thought patterns the enemy uses to keep us from praying. Now I know when God first began to work in my heart to put prayer significantly into my life, I used to work for Atomic Energy of Canada. I had to be up at a certain time. I had to be at work at a certain time. I had two children who were six and three at that time. And so there were responsibilities early in the morning as well. And so the only way I could find time to pray was to get up an hour earlier. Or whatever block of time I wanted to get up earlier. And as I've told you, I'm a morning person. But I've discovered something. At the moment the alarm clock goes off, there's no morning person. <laughs> at the moment the alarm clock goes off, we're all other pre kinds of people. So, in order to win the battle with the alarm clock, I had to train my mind to think in a certain way in approximately 10 seconds. That's how long it takes to roll over and hit the snooze button. How you think and what you think in about 9 seconds is going to determine whether you win that battle or not. And I'll tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is, oh, I shouldn't go back to sleep. You know why? Because the mind doesn't work with negatives. Mind can only work with positives. Let me illustrate. Please stop thinking about lunch right now. In fact, memorize this sentence, I should not be thinking about lunch. It's an, you cannot do it because the, in order to not think about lunch, you have to what? Think about lunch first. So I shouldn't go back to sleep doesn't work. You got to replace it with something else. And so the, I asked the Lord for some Scripture, from truth, because you battle the enemy's lies with truth. Everything he says is lies. Satan's temptation to use, oh, you poor little boy, you've got so much work to do today, you need some rest, go back to sleep. You can start tomorrow. That's his lie. The truth is God's word, which says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's about 10 seconds. And so I memorized those verses. 
and took a while took a while until it became second nature so that now it's not an issue anymore took a while so when that alarm clock goes off i don't think i shouldn't go back to sleep i said they that wait upon the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings of eagles they shall run and not be weary and by the time i'm i'm up and ready to go you understand what i'm saying you got to guard that appointment you have to be militant with it because he will be relentless and so find something i had a, a guy in our church who said hey i don't have a problem getting up in the morning i get up at 5 every morning without the alarm clock he says my problem is the newspaper so the first thing i do is i make myself my cup of coffee i pick up the newspaper and 3 hours are gone isaiah 40 would be of no use to him he has to find something else some other truth from god's word with which to resist the lie of the devil that those 3 hours worth of news have to be read first that's his lie he'll do anything to get you off your plan to pray and he has different things for each one of us and so you need to know exactly what truth from god's word you will oppose the lie that comes to your mind to win that battle with the alarm clock okay you've established a place you've established a time you've carved out a block of time that is large enough to be meaningful small enough to be manageable and you've got there now you're finally ready to start praying okay so here we go now we're getting to the guts of the matter we need some tracks to run on and the reason you need some tracks to run on is a simple principle of life that is inviolable that the discipline of structure precedes the delight of spontaneity when we all want spontaneity in our lives and prayer should be like a relationship yet true spontaneity arises out of structure i'm not an artist of any kind you know i don't sing i don't paint i don't do any of that stuff but i always used to think that when artists created their paintings they would just sit with, with their paints and their easels and uh, their what do you call that stuff uh, in front of their uh, easels and they would just uh, take out their brushes and create this masterpiece i think that's how i thought it would create and then i talked to an artist in our church he said oh it's not like that at all he said there are six rigorous steps that we have to follow those things that you call those flourishes are just the little touches at the end if you miss any one of those six steps she said the painting will be a failure there it was again the, the delight of spontaneity comes and is built upon <clears throat> a discipline of structure in our lives all these musicians who pray you know we just hear the 3 minutes or 4 minutes of creativity you don't hear the hours and hours of playing the scales morning noon and night the discipline of structure precedes the delight of spontaneity and so you need some tracks to run on and it is precisely because of the tracks that your prayer will become spontaneous and alive so let me give you a 40 minute track and don't be put off by 40 minutes this is my suggestion for a balance between large enough to be meaningful and small enough to be manageable there was a lady in a church that i was speaking at last summer and she, when i came to this point of the sermon she said oh no i don't think i can ever pray 40 minutes she said by the time you finished i was ready to get going and so i hope that that's the same kind of journey that many of you will have so what do you do you get there what do you do first first of all i suggest you do something called clearing the decks what do i mean by that when you come into god just like you came to church this morning there are so many things that are buzzing around our heads maybe there are there's physical issues you know maybe you just got a phone call maybe you had an argument with your spouse on the way to church maybe you're a teenager that stay up late last night never showed up or maybe you have a, an exciting afternoon plan could be anything there's so many things that are buzzing around in our minds at that point what do you do 
I'll tell you, you should know by now what you shouldn't do, right? Which is, don't think about those things. You're not going to be able to, you got to be able to think. You have to think about them to not think about them. I learned this from C.S. Lewis. He said, bring them into your prayer life right away. So the first thing I do is to just rehearse before God all the things that are in the active center of my brain at that moment. Whether they're the happy things or the sad things or the indifferent things. Just lay them at his feet. You know, Lord, for the next 40 minutes, they are yours. You run the universe, you can handle these five, six things easily. Because I want to relate to you. So take, and, and some days, you need to clear the decks just from your desire to not pray. There are some days when I don't feel like praying, for whatever reason. So I actually wrote out a prayer for myself in those days, and you don't need to use these words, but try and get a sense uh, of what honest prayer looks like. Because that's the thing that God wants. He wants honesty. He said, these people draw near to me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. God is not interested in that kind of praying at all. He wants ruthless honesty in his prayers. So I used to pray prayers like this on some days. Lord Jesus, you know my heart. This morning I do not feel like praying. I'm not in a good frame of mind at all. And I feel I'm only doing this just to take it off my list. I know that does not impress you. So I want to affirm this morning that if I did not pray at all, you would not love me any less. And if I spend this time in prayer like I should, you will not love me more. Thank you that my relationship with you is secure and unaffected by a performance of religious ritual. I just dare to believe that even though I'm not in the best frame of mind right now, by the time I'm through, I will have been touched by your life. So all my hope is in you and not in my prayers. You know the beautiful thing about this is, as soon as you start talking to God and telling him, hey God, I don't really even feel like praying today. Everything I'm going to be praying this prayer is inauthentic. Guess what? You've already stopped, started praying authentic prayers at that point. When you start confessing to God that you don't want to talk to him, you're already talking to him. That's, that's the beauty of ruthless honesty. So whatever it is, take some time to clear the decks, including the frame of mind that doesn't even feel like praying. It's absolutely amazing how this works. Because you're in sacred space. He takes over. He loves and delights people who come to him with an honest and an open heart that just tell it like it is. And then move to thanksgiving and praise. What did the psalmist say? I will enter your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Those are entrance requirements it would seem. So about two years ago, I started doing this. That after, right after clearing the decks, two or three minutes, and I put some of those times, timelines along the way just to give you a sense of proportionality to this as well, to this structure. I just take some time to just rehearse the last 24 hours or how, whatever period of time before you last talk to God. And just thank him for everything that happened that you're thankful for. You will be amazed at the list how long it is even on your bad days. Food, shelter, clothing, health, joyful experiences, children, grandchildren, the privilege of ministry, God's word, the privilege of coming into his presence, the salvation that Jesus gives to us. The list is really long. And the reason this is important is that we're not good at thanksgiving. One of the things Sham and I have observed in 35 years of ministry is that even Christians, sometimes especially Christians, are not very good at saying thank you. It's not for nothing that that story is in the Bible where 10 lepers were healed and only one came back to thank Jesus. And he said, where are the other nine? Thanksgiving is a big deal. And so take some time at the beginning just to, before you ask him for anything, thank him for the things he's already given to you that you didn't even ask him for. And then, and then praise. Enter your gates with thanksgiving and enter your courts with praise. Praise is important. It reminds us. And by the way, you know, it's not as easy as it sounds. 
We need a lot of, I need a lot of help when it comes to praising. Because as Christians, we use words like glory and praise and honor. They are great words. But by themselves, they're not actually praise. I mean, suppose I were to bring this brother up here and say, okay, it is my great honor to praise this gentleman today. And I kept using words like praise and it's my honor to give him glory today. And then we sit down. What do you know about him? Nothing. You don't know one thing about him before he came up. But I used the words praise and glory and honor several times. Praise and glory and honor have to have content poured into them. And so I've helped, I need the help of language. This is where music comes in. I don't have a voice. I can't sing like these people sing here. Beautiful voices. But the issue is not whether we have a voice. This issue is whether we have a song. If we are Christians, we have a song in our hearts. And I'm thankful for men and women who have written beautiful songs. So I use old hymns and I use modern day songs that give specific contours to, to the greatness of God. And so if that helps you, use it. If poetry helps you, use it. So find something that will help you just to take a few moments to thank God for the things he's given you and praise him for some dimension of who he is. And then open with a brief prayer for the Spirit's illumination. We're going to read the word now. Uh, by the way, it's reading scripture and prayer are two activities that were never to be separated. One of the biggest reasons why both of them are boring is because we've separated scripture from prayer. Life comes into both of them when we put them together in a way that I'm going to suggest to you right now. And so once you've cleared the decks and given thanksgiving and praise, it's time to read God's word. And so you need to pray for, a, pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate you. Because you see, this has nothing to do with intellect. Engaging, this is not Bible study. This is not taking out your Greek lexicons and your Hebrew grammars and stuff like that. This is listening to God speaking to you. And this has nothing to do with your human intellect. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the natural man does not understand the things of God. Our natural intellect is totally unable to really understand God's word. But because we are Christians, as soon as we have been regenerated, every single one of us has a mind that has been uniquely tailored to the word of God. We become spiritual beings who understand through the work of the Spirit, spiritual truth taught in spiritual words. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 talked about. And he begins by saying, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Every single one of us standing here, who if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a mind that is capable of engaging powerfully with the word of God. Don't let the devil tell you otherwise. And you don't need a seminary degree for that. <clears throat> but you do need the Holy Spirit. So pray for the Spirit. And then go to the portion of scripture that is assigned for that day. It's, it is very useful and necessary to have a reading plan. Several decades ago now when I first began my ministry, there was a young man and he was young at that time. We are, both he and I are 35 years older now. And he, he said, I'm going to start praying like you said. So I said, that's good, Dave. So the following week I said to Dave, how did the week go? He said, terrible. I said, what happened? He said, I went down to my study on Monday morning. I opened the Bible, started reading in the Psalms. Didn't like the Psalm I was reading. I flipped to the book of James. Didn't like the chapter on James. Went back to Isaiah. Didn't like that too and I put it away. Well, no wonder. He didn't know where to read. You need to have a plan. Because if you have a plan, you waste no time at all of your precious time deciding where you're going to read. You just pick up the Bible where you left off the last time and start reading again. There are all kinds of Bible reading plans that you can Google on. I follow the one-year Bible reading plan that takes me through the Bible in once a year. 
you can read have bible reading plans that takes you through the bible in 2 years or in 3 years or the new testament and the psalms and whatever i don't care what it is find something that is a plan and so you don't have to waste any time and it is important there's only one way of reading the bible that i do not recommend and that is starting from genesis reading sequentially because you will around february or march you will hit leviticus and you will do nothing for another 9 months very few people survive four or five chapters of leviticus a day you know but we are reading in a reading plan that reads in three or four places you get it along with the other that's not because leviticus isn't crucial there is a it's the abc book of holiness by the way uh, and many of us would do well to pay attention to leviticus but we're also wired in certain ways so find some bible reading plan and follow it and then this comes to the heart of it as you are reading mark what strikes you as initiating speech the single most important thing i learned about prayer that transformed my prayer life is the fact that prayer is not initiating speech but prayer is answering speech we so often think that prayer is us talking to god shopping list prayer list i'm not against prayer list i'm just saying it's just us coming in rehearsing the list to god he already knows all those things anyway in fact jesus said don't pray like the heathen your god already knows what you need so the issue you see is not what do i have to say to god the issue is what does he have to say to me and frankly if you think about it in real life we find that kind of conversation so much easier like if i had come to the hall earlier on and you had encountered me you probably wouldn't have most of you wouldn't say anything to me that's typical of many churches but if i came to you and said hey can you tell me where i can find the worship leader today you say yeah come with me and you'd open the door we all find it easier to respond when somebody else takes the initiative it's the way we are wired exactly the same thing is true when it comes to god so look upon your bible reading as putting yourself in a place where god initiates the conversation and one of the ways you can rec- and here are three or four ways in which you can recognize what is initiating speech for example anything that reveals god's nature or work you might read a story uh, in the old testament you might read a statement either about who god is or how god works so when that happens stop god is saying something to you about himself and how can you respond there are at least a couple of ways you can respond first of all you can praise him and now you're pouring content to the prayers so you you might read a story about god's sovereignty and boy do we ever need to know that god is sovereign these days when you see what's happening to the world and what's happening to the stock markets see the last past, past week it's good to know that god is sovereign over that so sometimes you might praise him other times when you see something about god revealed in the word of god you could intercede you could pray that for somebody else you say that's exactly the kind of god that so and so needs yesterday morning i was on the phone with a father who had spent half the previous night weeping before god because of one of his children and and in a very vulnerable dangerous position that she was in and so i was able to remember a story of god's life uh, god's working in the life of jacob and was able to use that in my prayer for that person so when the scripture reveals god's nature or god's work you can either praise him or you can use it to intercede for someone else or you can do both that's one example or maybe scripture might reveal sin sometimes you're reading god's word and you're convicted of sin you may be reading in proverbs about gossip and then all of a sudden you say oh last night conversation under the guise of sharing a prayer request that was really gossip what happens when you do that well then you confess confession then becomes the appropriate response the initiating speech was conviction and the response to speech is confession confession or thirdly you might find a promise in scripture i think of a time when 
I happened to be walking along and this was a very powerful encounter. That's why I remember it. I read Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20. Now may the God of peace that brought forth again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good to do his will and work in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Two beautiful promises. May he work in you what is pleasing to him and may he equip you with everything good. So that, that's an example of a promise. Now, how do you respond to a promise? Again, there are more than one way. This, by the way, is why this is never boring. You can read the same scripture at different times and have a very different conversation with God. This is what it means when it says the Bible is living and active. For example, if you read a promise, you can pray for faith to believe it. Maybe you read a promise and say, is it really true? Can God really do that? Lord, I don't believe that. I have a hard time believing that you'll actually do that for me. Well, if that's how you respond, don't go ahead and pretend. Pray that thing. Say, Lord, I need it. I don't believe it. It's okay to say that to God, by the way. Far better than pretending you believe it when you don't. You should tell him, I'm having a hard time believing this God. I need faith. Faith comes from you. So that would be an appropriate response. Or maybe you believe this and it's already true in your life. In which case, thanksgiving becomes the appropriate response. You can just thank him. By the way, if you said to me, I already thanked God before. It's okay. You can thank him again. Uh, he doesn't mind at all. So this time he brings thanksgiving to your mind. So this time you thank him that you already know this promise to be true. Or maybe you think of somebody else and say, Lord, I have the faith to believe it, but my daughter needs it. Or this person who's going for this interview, or our pastor who's preaching that particular say, or our church that is going through this condition, or this missionary that I pray for, they need this promise to be true in your life. And therefore intercession becomes an appropriate response. Are you getting some idea of how this works? Okay, it's hard for me sometimes to read what's going on inside of you. So, so that's the third way of responding. Of revealing God's nature, revealing a sin, making a promise. Or sometimes it can exhort or command an action. Maybe you read a scripture that is a command to do something. Maybe it's to give money. Maybe it's to settle, settle a relationship with someone. In that case... Responsive speech may be just asking for strength and courage and opportunity. Sometimes you need strength because you're weak to carry out that command. Or sometimes you're fearful and you need courage. Other times you may be both strong and courageous, but you just don't have an opportunity. Uh, I have my daughter's permission to share this. On one occasion, she leads worship in our church. And on one occasion on a Saturday, she was preparing, rehearsing with the team and God had spoken to her about some unkind remarks she'd made about somebody else in the church. And so she really felt that she needed to set this right. It wasn't anything big, but it, God spoke to her. It was a command. But there was no opportunity and she really felt, she said, Lord, I would love to get this settled before I lead the church and worship three times. So can you please make this woman show up? And she lived in, across the city. And it was a Saturday afternoon at four o'clock. In five minutes after Shaila, Sheila prayed that prayer, this lady walked into the church. She said, I don't know what made me come here right now. She also was a very mature, loving woman who was able to minister to my daughter and said, see, honey, how much God loves you to answer a prayer like that. So it was just a wonderful time for her. But there she needed to pray for an opportunity. So whatever it is, if there's an exhortation or a command to pray, see, four different ways in which God can speak to you. Either he reveals his nature or his work. Either it's a conviction of some sin in your life or it's a promise that he makes to you or exhortation to do something. And in each of those cases, thanksgiving, praise, intercession are all appropriate responsive speech. 
And the more you do this, the better and more adept you will get at recognizing initiating speech. And then finally, there's work to do, so you commit the rest of the day to him. And so, as I near the end of my time of prayer, there's still many, many things that I haven't prayed about, uh, meetings that I have that day, uh, things that I need to get done. Maybe it's a day of study. Maybe I have a counseling appointment. I pray for wisdom. I pray for strength. And above all, I'm learning to do one more thing because Jesus said, if you do not do it in love, it's, not, it's a lot of noise. He said, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels. If I, I can preach a wonderful sermon and there's no love in my heart, he said, just an empty, shallow gone. Love never fails. And we are known by our love. And so one of the things I've started adding to my prayer is that, Lord, and everything I do for the rest of this day, may it come across to somebody else as an act of love for them. One last thing, you know, that we have finished. So here's the plan that you have. Dallas Willard puts it this way. Just skip to the last two slides, please. He says, now is the time. Now is the time for decision and especially for planning. Just as there is no faith that does not act, so there is no act without some plan. Faith grows from the experience of acting on plans and discovering God to be acting with us. So as you begin to act on this 40-minute track, you might be surprised that God is acting with you. You cannot follow Jesus without a plan to serve as the vessel in which the treasure of his life is received. Think, think of this as a treasure of a vessel in which the life of Jesus is going to be poured into your hands. Your plan will be the cross on which you die to your old self and meet him in his life beyond death. You know, we live in a day where Christians are persecuted. 150,000 people are martyred every year. And in the days of ISIS, that number will probably grow up. But here in North America, what does it mean to take up our cross? Have you ever wondered that when the alarm goes off, taking up your cross may mean not rolling over and hitting the snooze button, but getting up and embracing a plan, taking this plan as your cross on which you die and see resurrection life come as a result of that. Let's pray together. I trust you, Lord Jesus, to take everything that has been mere human in its origin in what I've said and let it quickly be wiped out from the slate of people's mind. Let everything that I've spoken that is a reflection of your heart and a desire of your word to your people, let it remain. Burn it in their hearts. Let their hearts burn within them. Let them not forget it. Let their minds be clear in its understanding. Energize their bodies to walk in obedience in Jesus' name.